Today, we are talking to David Meeker. Axios calls David one of Raleigh's most influential real estate developers. That is definitely the case. In his work as a commercial developer, investor, and builder, he keeps Raleigh charm and history intact for tomorrow's citizens while fostering creative entrepreneurship and a healthy community today. His specialty has been adaptive reuse, meaning historic buildings that he repurposes with a nod to their former life. Businesses that also support independent food and retail in or near downtown, which is the lifeblood of a successful, engaging city. Take a listen. Why, why, why Raleigh? Raleigh has such a good soul. Where is home? Right now, I'm making a home in Raleigh. We start a business that is really just betting on Raleigh. This is a podcast about a medium-sized, mid-Atlantic American city growing at an unprecedented rate. Only Austin has a higher growth rate over the last five years. It's one of the top three hottest job markets in America, according to the Wall Street Journal. Hosted by a Raleigh-born millennial producer and media consultant, Flo Lumsden. That's me. With co-host, former New Yorker, Jen Exer, relative newcomer to Raleigh, story and brand consultant slash writer, Chauncey Zalkin. Flo moved back here to make this her forever home. Chauncey was looking for a good place to raise her kids that shared her values and provided opportunities and was pretty to look at. She'd never lived anywhere so polite. Hi, I'm Flo. And I'm Chauncey. Welcome to the Why Raleigh podcast. A podcast about Raleigh, North Carolina, Exploring what makes this city what it is. And what it will become. So David, in my email inviting you to be my first guest on Why Raleigh, I wax a bit poetic about the role your beautiful space, trophy beer and pizza played in making me feel at home when I moved here in 2019. As I said in my email, I am a sucker for well-designed public spaces and good beer. So quite literally, what you bring to Raleigh played a role in making me feel I made the right choice in moving here, especially after fast-paced big city life in places like New York, Paris, and Barcelona, where you have access to so much cool culture and food. So on that note, let me start with this. If you had to pick one or two of your favorite trophy beers, what would they be? Yeah, great question. I'm a seasonal beer drinker, but not seasonal. And like most people, I don't drink stouts and um, porters in the winter, but I drink Cloud Surfer uh, especially after a three or four mile run. I love Cloud Surfer in the winter. That's sort of my favorite. And then I drink a lot of Mort's, which is the lager in the summer. It's like the most approachable, easy drinking trophy beer. So those two are my favorite. And then I drink a lot of Trophy Wife when I'm out in public because that's what's at most of my friends' restaurants and bars. And that's our best seller by far. Yeah, and I love how craft beers can really be super creative with their naming and really connect with people. I think it's one of the categories in products where people really can be super creative and and Trophy has done an amazing job of playing off their name. Thanks. Yeah, it's gimmicky, but it's fun. And hopefully people don't take it too seriously. A few people have through the years and we were certainly concerned about it before we named it Trophy Wife. But I think when we balanced it out with Trophy Husband and Trophy Partner, People understand it's a joke and fun, and there's something for everybody. So it's yeah. been a good name for us. And I do think people drink it because of the name. It's it's funny. Or at least try it the first time. Yeah, it's, it's like something you would want to almost gift to somebody who wasn't from the area because exactly. like it tells a story. Yes, and I think it's we're in a very serious era, but it's nice to have a little bit of levity, especially about where we've come from because we've come such a long way, and we're hopefully going a lot further with feminism and 
equity and people being respected and being able to be themselves. We came from an era where there was such a thing as a, a trophy wife. And as I, I said before, I grew up in Miami where there was a lot of that. <laughs> like trophy wives were a real thing. Right. So right. you also invest in a lot of food spaces because you're you're really investing in that first floor of buildings and restoring old buildings. So talk to me about that first floor and what role food plays in a city in developing a real character and personality to a city or in attracting people. Yeah, we're really deep into the food world. I'm a partner in Trophy that has the two Trophy locations. We own State of Beer and Young Hearts Distilling also. Then we're a landlord to other really cool food and beverage concepts. And then we have a brokerage that helps additional food and beverage concepts. So to me, a city is so much better when you have great local food and beverage concepts. People want to go out to eat. That's why they move to cities. That's why they stay there. And we've tried to be really helpful in making Raleigh a food destination city. We're really lucky in that people in Raleigh support really good concepts. So we have the audience. We're really lucky in that the sort of veterans in that world, the Ashley Christensen's and the Scott Crawford's of that world are really helpful. Um, and then it's sort of about making the deal happen. And one really positive thing that's happened since the pandemic is a lot of landlords have started reducing the rent. They're helping more with the fit for the good concepts so that the concepts have a better chance to be successful. If you have lower rent and you have less loan on the upfit, you're in a much better place. So we've been helping these really good concepts find spaces. It's been rewarding and I think it's great for Raleigh. So we're deep in it and care a lot about it and also care about making Raleigh a walkable, bikeable city and having these great first floor spaces is a big part of that. What's interesting is that it becomes like the loss leader and it's like the like emblematic of a city and creates community for people. And then people can spend money on other things and the whole entire community benefits from this. Sometimes things are not as direct as like making a profit specifically for this one element of your business, but it's part of a bigger pie. And I have a friend who owns a restaurant in way upstate New York and they've struggled a lot. And I know that it's been hard for people to find staff and it's hard to run a restaurant. It's one of the most challenging and highest risk businesses that there are. But at the same time, we really need that as a society. We love food. It's how people commune with one another and, and share. And it's like a, the lifeblood of, of society to have these restaurants. So I think it's amazing that you're supporting that and having that foresight to see that because a lot of these cities, a lot, even global cities go the way of chain restaurants and lose a lot of their, you know, personality and edge. And I think that's like the beginning of a crumbling city right. is if you lose that personality and the diversity that food brings. So I'm really grateful that you're doing that. Um, yeah. And the good news is the big developers, the folks downtown like High Woods or Greg Sandroider, the Canes of the world who do down stuff downtown, but also North Hills, and then Fenton, the project in Cary, the owners of those projects get the sort of loss leader amenity thing. And they're recruiting only local. They don't want a lot of chains because that's what the customer wants right now. So it's really cool that the customer has spoken by where they spend money and the landlords are listening. So. Well, that's really interesting because obviously in other cities, they don't do that. So what do you think is different about Raleigh and these developers? Because you're all different. And you were saying you have different specialties, different focuses. How come Raleigh seems to retain that sense of priority about the local kind of businesses not all landlords do this. I don't want to like say everyone's doing it the right way, but 
I think we have a lot of local developers and then the out-of-town developers have learned a lot or are, are good developers. We have the best developers trying to be here. And once the good local developers do it, it kind of forces the out-of-town people to do it anyway because it's a market and they've created it. And the rents really, the rents upstairs on floors two through 10, for example, really are driven on how good the first floor amenity or retail concept is. If you have a great coffee shop, you're probably more, you have a higher percentage of units leased versus if you have a store that's not doing so well. I think it's, we had a couple of local developers get it going and other people realized they had to do it. So I think that's really unique and like a selling point. And you were also talking a little bit about policy at the policy level. You know, how does that play a part in creating what you want to create for Raleigh? Yeah, so policy is such a big deal. Cannot emphasize that enough. And the gift that's going to keep on giving to Raleigh in terms of making it a great city is the 2020 city council. So this is one council ago, got rid of parking minimums. So parking minimums was where if you built a certain number of apartments or a certain amount of office or retail space, you were required to build a certain amount of parking. The council got rid of that quick completely and said, hey, you build what you need to make your project work or what your bank requires you to have to, mm-hmm. to give you financing. Those numbers are less than the city previously required, sometimes half as many parking spots. So now all these new developments are building with less parking spots. Well, that's going to make it a little bit harder for people to have a second car, a little more likely that they might walk or bike somewhere, a little more likely they might pass another shop on the way and pick up something else. If there are more people walking or biking, we'll find the unsafe sidewalk or bike lane areas and fix those. And so it's a trickle effect, trickle effect, and it's going to keep trickling forever. It's so great. The other thing they did is they um, legalized ADUs and ADU is a backyard apartment. Something like 40% of the people who live in ADUs live for free because it's a kid or a grandparent. Well, a kid or yeah, a (laughs) child or a grandparent. (laughs) I should put my nine-year-olds in the ADU. 25 year old kid. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but that frees up. Think how many apartments that frees up now because those 25 year olds or grandparents are now living in your backyard, well, that reduces apartment pricing. There's just all these things that will have a huge impact. Day one, when they were passed, basically had no impact because it took the first person six months to build an ADU and the first development project didn't finish for three years. But over time, they're going to have a huge impact and they're really exciting. I didn't think about that, that these things, they don't come together right away, but they come together fairly quickly because you need to have the bike lanes if you're going to have fewer parking spaces if you start to put in outdoor seating and restaurants and stuff in these spaces, then you're going to have people are going to not want to have need to have a car. If you have bus, better buses and light rail, then it just starts to build upon itself. And you attract people to the city who are the kinds of people who want to bike and be outside. And frankly, having lived in New York City and growing up in Miami, temperature wise today, for example, it is it started off in the 40s and it's going to end at 80 degrees. Nice. And it is like this ideal weather. You know, people go to South Florida because they think, oh, they love the sunshine. It's freezing up north. But it's actually really hot and uncomfortable a lot of the year. And here it's like I I was joking on a podcast that it's like you play winter. You don't even have to zip up your coat most of the days. So you get that little winter feeling. But it's not real winter, winter where your eyeballs are frozen or your teeth hurt like how it is sometimes in Manhattan. And yeah, and it's also like only a couple months of really horribly hot weather. And so people want to be outside. 
And they're, you know, this is just a great city for that to experiment with doing more outdoor space. So I think that's really interesting to think of that, the urban planning and the dynamics. So let's dive into your most prominent endeavors. Tell us about your approach to, to building urban spaces. So I'm a downtown guy, grew up in Boylan Heights, close to downtown, and have always been attracted to other downtowns too. So if we're going to take a three-day trip, it's most likely to a cool downtown, New York, Chicago, D.C., Philly, versus going to the beach or the mountains like some people just really like walking around. So trying to create that here. So we've looked for projects downtown that where we can afford to to play in that space. 15 years ago, that was in the heart of downtown. And we have two buildings on South Wilmington Street, one block from Fayetteville Street, the Beasley's Chicken and Honey Building, the Young Hearts Distilling. And then now that really means in the neighborhoods around downtown, the bigger developers are playing right in the heart of downtown. And so we're sort of priced out. It's not necessarily a bad thing because the bigger developers can build more density and we can do these really creative projects that don't get as much rent and, you know, just smaller in scale. But we try and find projects that are interesting and that we we think we can be successful with. And that means getting tenants. What's, what do they think is cool? What do we think um, people are going to want to go to? How can we get a lot of people in, in a little amount of space as, as much as possible? That's the only way the numbers work. And I think a good example is on West Morgan Street, we bought three houses that are between the old Charlie Goodnights and Trophy on Morgan Street that everyone who drives by probably didn't really notice. Are they are these arts and crafts cottages? By yeah. The way? Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And they're in bad condition. The lot's small, so no bigger developer is really interested. But we think we can do this really cool renovation of them and connect them with the front deck. And we're hoping to have a neighborhood bar, a sandwich shop, and a coffee shop where the front deck that has a bunch of seats busy the entire time at 7 a.m. when people are getting coffee and at 11 p.m. when people are at the neighborhood bar and then of course the sandwich shop between and so we think that's really attractive people will see that want to go there and so we can make the numbers work and that's one of the really hard realities about being a real estate developer you can be dreamy and have these big ideas but the numbers have to work one to get bank financing and two, even if you can get bank financing, if they don't work on your first project, you will not get bank financing on your second project. And also you need them to be profitable because yeah. you need to feed your family. <laughs> you got to pay your bills. You got to pay your bills. Whatever. That's... In real estate, it's like this long-term wealth play. You pay off the mortgage and it goes up in value. But if you're not making money month to month, how do you pay your bill, your own bills? And how do you pay your I have employees? How do you pay them? So it really is a challenge. And so the balance is like making the the numbers match the dream, and we're always trying to figure that out. What are, what are, yeah, what are some of your approaches to making sure that you have that balance of creativity and you know likability in the community, as well as making sure that, it's, that you profit from it in a reasonable amount of time? Yeah, so we try and find, like, it, when you buy something, you're normally basing it on market rate, on what's there, the square footage or whatever. So you try and find something where you can add something that the market's not thinking about. So at those three houses, we're adding this big front deck, and there's a huge backyard that we think we can generate a ton of revenue from, that maybe every other developer was looking at what they could generate from the houses by themselves. You are creative about how you think about the space. Yeah. And another good example is Beasley's Chicken and Honey. It was a 4,500-square-foot building right in the heart of downtown. We had to pay market rate pricing. The numbers didn't work. The way we made them work is we dug out the basement and created a second floor. So now it's a 9,000-square-foot building 
and there's Fox cocktail bars in the basements of a very successful cocktail bar downtown by Ashley Christensen. And so that made the numbers work. We added a second floor, but you really have to, to compete in this market and make the numbers work. You, have, you to, have to do a lot of marketing too. You yeah. got bring, drive people to those places, especially if there's parking issues, which there currently are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So downtown's interesting. So downtown has plenty of parking, but it's in the decks and a lot of people aren't comfortable pulling into the decks. So it's really a marketing thing. And how do we get people comfortable enough to pull into decks or how do we get the concepts good enough that people are willing to be uncomfortable to go there? And it's just a balance. It's always a challenge. I think the biggest thing that's going to change coming soon is we're four or 5,000 apartment units are under construction right now and they'll finish. That's in addition to the 10,000 folks we already have living downtown. So you increase your population by 30, 40, 50%. Everything's going to be busier downtown. People want to be there and they'll deal with parking. And also like, I don't know if you had anything to do with the art walk they had like last year or a couple of years ago. I don't remember when it was. But that was, I thought, a really good effort at trying to get people to just have there's some sort of visual interest and go downtown to walk around. It's amazing how many people come out for public art projects. I think you're probably talking about Illuminate. Yes, it I am. It was a five or six week long sort of light show. And we had 80,000 people come downtown oh for that God. light show. People love, people want to interact. It's like people are desperate and thirsty to be with other people. This is what I think that the pandemic accelerated that yeah. while it accelerated the alienation. It also accelerated this like desire to connect offline. And so I think there's just endless opportunity to make that happen for people. I think that's super exciting. I think it's interesting that you called yourself an urbanist when we were speaking earlier. So you must have like a favorite piece of architecture or architects throughout history or in different cities, spaces that you just love that are not in Raleigh, like iconic places like monuments or like Central Park or Champs-Élysées, like in other cities, like what places do you admire? That's a good question. I've Really gotten into seeing cool food halls. I'm into that, where there are a lot of people in dense spaces. Chelsea Market's a cool example of that. And um, and New York is just best cities in the world. You can go there and walk 50,000 steps and, and see it all. So I always go to see the new thing. I'm, I'm like guilty of that. Mm-hmm. So if there's a new park or a new development project, um, always go to chase that. Nice. What is a public space that you think works really well in another city? So I think the best example of a cool public space, and it applies to Raleigh, is the same architect who is designing the playground at Dix Park, which is a 20-acre playground, designed a big park in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, wow. It is so successful that 10,000 people go on a busy weekend day. Oh, 10,000 people. It has changed the economy. People travel in. It's, there's park tourism. And Tulsa is a smaller city than Raleigh. Nice. So you would think that Raleigh will have at least 10,000 visitors to Dick's Park on a busy weekend day when it's finished. It finishes in the first quarter of 2025. Maybe more because we're a bigger city. I did not even know that. Bigger area. And so it starts to, one, it's very exciting. All these new people coming to the park. It's great for the park. And then as a downtown person, how can we get some of those people to stay downtown or to come downtown and eat or drink or shop? How do we make the connection to downtown really easy so that if you park downtown at your hotel or where you eat brunch, you don't get back in your car, you walk the three quarters of you a walked mile. To, or you mean like you walk to Dick's Park? Walk to Dick's, walk back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Up Boylan, going yeah. downtown, yeah. So the, and the, the park in Tulsa was just incredible. 
There are actually some highways that run through it and you don't even know. They have land bridges with great landscaping. So you're walking over highways on grass with all this landscaping. You barely hear the hum of cars. Wow. Um, and then the playgrounds are just incredible. Your kids go up here. You have to follow them for 100 yards because they're up in the playground equipment for 100 yards. Like it's just the scale uh, is just huge. And I think that that it's going to become a destination for the entire state and maybe even bigger than that as soon as it's finished. It's really exciting. I was listening to something where Salt Lake City, Utah, apparently has a great downtown that's bustling. I just read this. So we went with the chamber. The chamber took 150 of us to Salt Lake City a year and a half ago. This six months ago, we went to Denver a year and a half ago. But Salt Lake is seen to be the downtown that's recovered from COVID fastest. They have 140% of their previous foot traffic, so they're way up. And they did a few things. They got rid of parking minimums, which allowed developers to build more. They also sped up the permit time. So that was like if permits take six or eight months, they were trying to reduce that to a third, and they were successful in that. So a permit takes two or three months instead of six or eight. So they had all this new construction, all these new people living there. I will say they have a different setup than us because of the Mormon church. So the Mormon church owns a lot of the land downtown and can be a catalyst for things in a way that most cities don't have right, that. It's a unique type. situation. Very unique. Okay. But they do have great leadership like we do. They've been very forward thinking. It's not by accident that they're so successful, but we can also be just as successful. We can emulate what they're doing. And uniquely Raleigh. Yeah. So what's your favorite global city? I mean, New York is the city we go to most often. But I was just in Chicago. My wife ran the marathon four or five weeks ago. And that is such a beautifully organized city. It's clean. The buildings are beautiful. And somebody said to me that was because there was a big fire. It burned the whole city down and they were able to redesign it with alleys. Mm -hmm. So the trash is on the alleys. There's spacing between the buildings because of the alleys. And because of that, it appears so beautiful. New York is a bunch of piles of garbage on the corners. And I don't understand that because even... Barcelona, which has its own set of problems. There's like big places you can throw garbage in this. You know, that's going to be, a, I don't yeah. know what the city plans for that for Raleigh, but if you can get garbage organized. I think that's a hugely oh. under under considered thing. I think New York is just, it's insane how they have, they do not know how to deal with tra- It's trash. such a huge deal. <laughs> and then Global haven't done as much traveling as you. Been to Paris and London a few times and, and Italy. But the kids are five and six now, and I think they're ready for the flight. And so we're one of these spring breaks, maybe not this year, but maybe next year, we're going to try and take them over to London or Paris and, I just and live, my kids, live for a week. They're nine. So yeah. they just, and my ex-husband is English. So they, we all went to England this summer. Oh, cool. And this was their, they went on their first birthday. They have no memory of that. So that the grandparents could see them on their first birthday. They were born Christmas Day. So it was over Christmas. Wow. Yes. So this is their first like trip while well, they're cognizant human beings. Yeah, yeah. We went to, they went to Northern England. I stayed in London and then they came down and I took them to Paris because that's where I met their dad. And, and, where, and so that was really emotional for me to show them like the origin of why they exist is Paris. And wow. um, now they have some context, but I think before nine, eight, they're not going to remember it yeah, or yeah. like, it's kind of a waste of money. How did they do on the trip? They do better traveling than they do in the house. Oh, wow. Hands down. I took them to New York years ago, 
and they're just going through Grand Central Station up down the stairs. I'm like, maybe it's like in their DNA or something, but they were so well behaved. There was, I had no problem. They never complained, but you get them in the house and they want ice cream or something. They're <laughs> dripping food everywhere and like they're little hellions, yeah. but yeah. put them on a plane. I don't know what it is. So yeah, I should be in perpetual motion. Yeah. That's my parenting technique. Hi, I'm Andrea, the community associate at Common Desk in Raleigh. And I'm Gabby with Fiction Coffee Crabtree Terrace. Fiction uses coffee as a vessel to spark connection and create spaces where everyone belongs. Common Desk brings together the key elements of your work week, office space, coffee, events, and meeting rooms, empowers them with our hospitality-driven staff and culture. With flexible memberships, A-list amenities, and spaces built with you in mind, Common Desk exists to make days better. Common Desk and Fiction Coffee are co-sponsoring this podcast. One of the other things that struck me about Raleigh when I moved here pre-pandemic is that there was a lot of independent creative retail. There were design shops with sophisticated designers, unique shops and maker spaces. Even living in big global cities, a lot of that is going away. When I moved from Paris to Barcelona, the idea was I was going to open a shop called What Women Make because I had curated a bunch of furniture designers and industrial designers that were female that had won all these awards. And I did a show in London at the London Design Festival. And I moved to Barcelona and all these wonderful little atelier, like workshop stores, all were going out of business because the financial crisis, 2008. So from the time that I like thought of moving in the couple months that I did the research, they all went away. And then Mm. they were replaced by all these chain stores. Still in New York and a lot of places, a lot of these shops were closing down. But I was completely impressed and thrilled when I visited in 2019 because there was so much of that. So what do you think makes that happen here? What's unique about Raleigh that it hasn't sold out to just being this generic city? What do you think makes it so that we can have that kind of independent retail and people are willing to invest in that and maybe lose a little bit of money to support those kinds of businesses. Yeah. So I think the equation worked for a long time where folks could, the it was affordable to rent a space and you could do enough sales to make it work. And as Raleigh grows and becomes more expensive, we need to make sure the first one stays true because people, more people will be downtown. You'll have more customers, but you got to make sure it's affordable. And I think that's probably going to have to be a role for government to play. You see other cities around or towns around Raleigh starting to subsidize upfits and rents for the local makers, the local shops that make a place cool. What's an upfit? I don't know what that uh, is. Oh, like just the construction of a space. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's just can get really expensive for these small spaces where you might have to spend fifty or 75000 to get open. And a lot of the coolest people can't afford to do that. Yeah. And so the equation's got to work. And I think... Um, it's probably going to have to be a government sort of policy Subsidizing thing. Subsidizing Yeah, where bit, you step yeah. in and help people get going. Once they get going, they can run on their own, but help them get going. And some aren't going to work, and you have to be okay with that. But the end result is our downtown so much cooler, and it allows creatives to be downtown. And, and we all benefit yeah. when those shops are there and artists can 100%. be downtown. And what's happening now is, other than like art space and a few other sort of subsidized spaces, the cool folks, some cool folks are leaving downtown and going to the really cool areas around Raleigh. Like where? Like the smaller towns, like Holly Springs or Apex or mm-hmm. whatever. 
And so we've got to make sure the equation in downtown Raleigh continues to work. And it and it has worked in the past, and there's certainly a scenario it can again. I'm interviewing Jesse from Edge of Urge, and I'm super excited about it. I love that store. But that's just like people love it, love to go in and out of places, pick up little things, and support locally made items. And yeah. there's also Heart, Heartwell. Yeah, Heartwell's in, cool. And Boylan Heights, and I love the backstory on that. Yeah. I think that's really great, you know, that you were going to be contributing to that and that Raleigh believes in that. And you yeah. do need, I know in London that I, there was this post, it got so many likes. There's a project where there's a lot of like lottery and like trinkety, garbagey stores in, in Oxford Circus. Okay. And there's a, an organization that is allowed, like paying, like the government's like paying to let artists come in and use some of those spaces for free completely for free to, to revitalize those areas so it's not just like tourists. Yeah. And there was a very mixed feeling about that. A lot of people who are very conservative are like, no, if it doesn't make money from the get-go, then it shouldn't happen at all. And then the creative people are... So it was an interesting dialogue going on around that, a little bit contentious. So I think it's interesting to see how people feel about it. But at the end of the day, if you, if you can go to a, a city and be able to find like something that's unique you're going to want to spend more time there. You're not going to want to go to places where you have just, you know, Applebee's. Absolutely. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, so why do you think this is a good place for entrepreneurship and for novel ideas? So in terms of entrepreneurs, I think you can sort of look at other folks' success and base, like, we've had a lot of folks move to Raleigh, start companies, and been very successful. There's partly like a rising tide attitude. People are helpful. I uh, want to share information, certainly in the craft beer and real estate world, but also in the tech worlds and other areas of um, the community too. And so it's, it's partly an attitude. We're just friendly here. We want to be helpful. I think there's also a very, a great pipeline of workers because we have such great universities yeah. and it's just easier for college students to stay here than have to move somewhere else. As long as we make it fun, they'll stay here. Or they come back. They tend to, you know, if they go somewhere else, they tend to come back to settle and raise their families here. I have a lot of friends who went to NC State, maybe did something else. Yep. Maybe they're not from here, but they went to NC State. And then yeah. they're just like, a great place to raise my kids, so I'm going to yeah. stay here. Absolutely. This wasn't even how I was going to segue into this, but let's talk about kids and family. So you're married. You have two sons. What are their ages? So two boys that are six and five. Six and five. Yeah. So I came here to raise my two daughters who are in fourth grade now. And I came here because I wanted a place that was safe and positive and with friendly, nice people with opportunities to, to learn and grow. And most importantly, diversity, because I, I grew up in Miami. I lived in New York and other very diverse cities. And I just had to be in. A, I love Vermont for one, but it's not a very diverse place. I like these like smaller, very pretty, picturesque places. But I don't think I could raise my kids where they weren't exposed to different cultures. And there's a lot of diversity here. And there's a lot of camps and activities. It's almost like endless. So what do you think are some of the best things about Raleigh for raising kids and a family Yeah, that you found? And so I totally agree. You can have a diverse experience here. My kids are in public school like yours. What school um, do they go to? They go to Con over oh, in yeah. Mordecai area. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so healthy for them. In school, you learn how to read and write and do math. You also had to learn, learn to deal with everyone in the real world. And if you're not in school with everyone in the real world, how can you learn to deal with them and associate with them and be friends with everybody? So it's such an important part of the learning experience. But still in Raleigh, it's easy to get into a bubble. 
Um, you do what's closest to you, what's easiest to walk to, and not at least in my neighborhood. I live in Mordecai. Those aren't very diverse places. Everyone who's there has kids my age and doing the same thing I'm doing. And so you really have to work through sports or other things to to be diverse. And Raleigh is dealing with the same thing every other city is dealing with, where the wealthier are doing just fine and the poor folks are struggling. And it's gotten worse in the last 10 to 20 years because of mostly federal policies, but some state policies. And it's a huge problem. We're lucky to have good city and county government who are working on it. But those levers they can pull are so much smaller than the state and, and federal levers they can pull. And so it's going to be, I think it's going to be the project for cities like Raleigh the next 10 years. Currently in downtown, we have more folks struggling with homelessness than we'd ever have. Starts with short-term homelessness, leads to addiction, mental health issues, leads to long-term homelessness. There's a shelter downtown that has 200 more people than it's designed for staying every night. And so it's like, all right, any city that has had this level of appreciation this quickly has dealt with this. How do we gear up for what's to come and really, one, get the shelter so nobody's nobody's sleeping outside any night of the week. So if we need 700 beds today, we need 1,500 tomorrow. How do you gear up for that? And then how do we help folks get out of short-term homelessness so they don't become long-term homeless and get them into housing? And look after our most vulnerable people. Because there is so much how empty housing in the country. I don't know about how Raleigh yeah breakdown, but it but has it's the so empty much empty houses with that aren't selling with, and people are homeless. It doesn't yeah. add up. And we don't have a lot of empty housing, but it's so much cheaper to provide housing than have somebody dealing with police, CMS, hospitals, you know, whatever they're dealing with on the street. Every city like Raleigh is, has this challenge, and I think the the question is how do we deal with it. And if we don't deal with it, none of us can be successful. It's not just the right thing to do. Right. But if downtown... It's economically... Oh, yeah. There's economic drivers for that. Well, if downtown Raleigh, which pays a huge portion of the real estate taxes for the for the city and county, if we're unsuccessful because we have 500 folks who are struggling with homelessness living downtown, everyone loses. And so it's much better to invest in shelters and, and nonprofits and resources to help these folks have a place to stay and get them back into into housing. So yeah, so you you also invest in an addiction recovery center. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And sure. So I'm on the board of Healing Transitions, which is a free detox and recovery center in Raleigh. Very unique for the country. Wow. You can. I didn't know it was free. Yeah, you can be struggling with heroin, heroin addiction. Decide you want to get sober. Walk a half mile from Fayetteville Street walk in the front door and stay there for 15 months for free while you recover and get your life together. And by the end, you'll be going off campus for a job, probably to a company that's owned by a previous participant who understands what you're going through, coming back, staying at night and, and saving up money. It's amazing. This place will blow that your mind. That sounds amazing. People... My, my, my jaw, yeah. is, you can't see me, but my jaw is dropped. It is amazing. And if you do a tour, you'd be even more blown away. People sort of ask, how did a brewery owner get on the board of uh, uh, addiction recovery? Yeah. And I think the answer is we all have a place in that fight. We're neighbors to the shelter or to the recovery center. And that's how we got to know them. And that's how we've gotten so involved. And we do a big 5K that fundraises for them. But really, it's part of me being a citizen of Raleigh. 
I can't just care about making money in my brewery or my business every day. We have to make sure that our most vulnerable have a place to go. And in the end, that will also make our businesses more successful too. Right. A uh, healthy as, society. I yeah. mean, it is it affects everybody. It well. does. But business owners really have a role in this. So the nonprofit leaders and the politicians, and Raleigh, that's like 100, 150 people, are stuck solving all of our problems. And the rest of us are running our businesses and making money and and at the end of the day going home. Um, and it's like, how can we leave it to 100 people or 150 people to have to worry about it all? So at our business, and a lot of businesses are starting to do this, we start to devote 10 to 20% of our time to be helpful. And so some of that's serving on board, some of that's getting involved with specific issues, but really try not to check out and leave it to these folks who are donating their lives, basically, to solving our problems. Yeah, I, I wrote an article in Inc. Magazine, and I, and I said, hey, enough of the SaaS pro- like we might have enough B2B SaaS products yeah. at this point. If, you know, founders, why don't you focus on the fentanyl crisis, teen depression, gun violence, even as businesses, like because this is, we is urgent. We had that opioid crisis that was like bad and now it's way worse with fentanyl. And so I, I kind of did a deep dive, which was not a happy couple of days. I'm like, Oh my God, looking at what, looking at the numbers really, like really, really focus on it is. It's terrifying. And I, I, I don't notice it that much here as the stories I hear about like places like Portland, but I have noticed since the pandemic more square, which was, I was there the day that they had their launch. I had just moved here and I was like, Oh my God, this is so great. They had a DJ, all those big toys. And now it is lined with a lot of homeless people. Yeah. And there's a lot, it just, it feels a little bit different. So I noticed that I've seen a, a little bit more of addiction on the streets and. So I think that this is, you know, you can never, will never go to that next level as a city of happy place if that's not taken care of and people aren't taken care of. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's terrible. I mean, fentanyl is a dollar a dose now. I guess you need eight to 10 do- doses a day to prevent the detox symptoms, but people can get eight to $10. And then a lot of people take too many doses at once, or whatever way you take it. And there's a lot of overdoses. And, and but there's also people who don't even like kit. Teenagers. Yeah, who don't even know. They can't, like, people used to be more experimental. It was like, okay. I mean, I don't, yeah, pretty anti drug for those hard drugs, but now you can't experiment. A 15 year old, a 16 year old can die, you know? So that was what I was really looking into is not even addictive behavior or, you know, just the addict, but just the like teenager who makes one mistake, buys something off the internet Mm. or thinks they're buying something else. So um, it's a whole other topic, but yeah. So I was just, I guess that answers my question, like how like trauma and healing, how it's motivated you in your own life. And Raleigh has a rich past, which I really feel like I need to, you know, maybe you can recommend some books. Like if you really want to learn about Raleigh's history, what would you recommend to people? But if you're thinking about the future, what, like paint me a picture, what do you envision for Raleigh? Let's say 10 years down the road, what will it look like, like a day in the life? Yeah. So I envision a much more dense city. And that doesn't necessarily mean more 40-story buildings, but it means more six to eight-story buildings along the main corridors. And so I envision Capitol Boulevard, New Bern, Western, Hillsborough, and then south on South Saunders and Wilmington of having apartment buildings the whole way with this rapid transit, bus rapid transit that's going on the vein and everyone's coming into to downtown. And you can sort of live without a car and it's 
to me, that's a really, really happy place. I know for some of old Raleigh, that's scary. But to me, that's, that's what I would hope would happen. And then it can keep extending and keep getting more dense between. So that's what I hope continues to happen. Obviously, we all have work to do to do that, but that's the city I want to live in. So I, I didn't even ask you any of these sort of fundamental questions of like, did you, were you born here? Yes. Okay. Did you ever live anywhere else for a chunk of time? I went to college in Houston, Texas. That okay. may have jaded me a little bit in terms of like strip malls and, and, uh, chains. I've, I've been there once. A client of mine at, at an ad agency was Louisiana Pacific. And so I had to go to a lot of like the housing developments as part of my job. And so I, it was just awful. I thought, I'm it's not like really that city tough. I have to say. <laughs> I was there in January and I went to the, one of the best sushi restaurants in the world, but it was in a strip center. And there's just something about, the experience there, like in you go to Chinatown in Houston and it's just several strip centers back to back to back with great Chinese places. That's so different than Chinatown in New York or San Francisco where it's been there forever and has all this character. Right. You're in a basement or whatever. And so, yeah, I, I really struggled in Houston, but it made me really want to live in a place that had more density. So I was going to ask you, why not just move to New York or Chicago? Why Raleigh? Why well, even bother like, yeah, changing a city? Yeah, good question. So two things. Like one, there Raleigh was a city with opportunity. And that was clear even 20 years ago when I was moving back here. So I was like, all right, I want to move to a city where I can have success. Raleigh, people are moving to Raleigh and there's going to be an economy there. And then two, in real estate development, you can't really move around. You have to sort of pick your place and stay. So I would have preferred to move to New York or Chicago or D.C. for five years, had a ton of fun and a lot of worldly experiences, and then come back to Raleigh. But that would have delayed my career five years. And so the whole game is you doing these projects and owning them for a long time, at least the way our company plays. And so I had to get going when I was 22. So what I did was start working for another developer for two years, learn how to do it, and then went out on my own. So you always wanted to do real estate? Yeah, at least at the end of college, I knew that by then. that I that Did you study? I, I did mean, math and economics. Study? Okay. But I was into, but between school years, I would do construct, I would work for contractors. Okay. So I said, all right, I don't necessarily want to be a contractor, but I want to be in construction. What's the, what's the other role? And the math has honestly not been that helpful because in college, math is all applied. It's all letters anyway. And we really, in real estate, you use Excel and it's pretty basic formulas. It's, none of it's rocket science. For me, it so, is. <laughs> it's rocket science <laughs> till you do it a few times. So. I mean, I am right-brained and yeah. I'm I'm analytical, critical thinker, but I'm not. Like numbers, I just start to like, fade, blur. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say? So if there's any books or movie, well, books that you think people could read about Raleigh to learn more about it. Are yeah, there, I, I mean, mean you might not there, know there any, are not a lot. I'm trying to think of books about Raleigh. Smeed York, who's former Raleigh mayor, also a big developer, wrote a book. And that was really interesting to me. But there's just not a lot of books about Raleigh. We haven't been a great city for a long time. This is new to us. And so hopefully that's Well, David Starrs. You got David Starrs. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> big fan. So, yeah, if somebody wants to get involved, you have creative people who are coming to this city and they want to help make the city a better place, what do you recommend? If you wanted to start a business or be physically in the spaces, what, what do you recommend? Yeah, so I mean, a great business group in terms of networking is the Raleigh Chamber. Most chambers are not that great, okay. but the Raleigh Chamber 
is great. That's good to know. I didn't know that. Oh, we have an incredible director, Adrian Cole. She's one of the best. Everyone's always trying to steal her all the time, and we're trying to keep her in Raleigh as long as possible. But she's a Raleigh person, though, so okay. she, she won't leave. But she's incredible, and she does all this work around small and medium-sized business and big business because that's what chambers do. And she also does all this equity work, and she's just playing in lanes that the chamber most chambers never play in. Oh, I got to get a, in touch with her. Yeah, great place. She should be on the podcast. Okay, um, yeah, that's um, what I'm thinking too. But uh, but a great place to connect with other businesses. I think that's probably where nice. I'd start. Thank you so much. This yeah. has been an honor to meet you and yeah. learn about all the stuff that you're doing. It's, an, it's inspirational. Same, same. And let's stay in touch. Please follow or subscribe so you don't miss our next episode coming soon. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. See you soon, Raleigh.